I'll get you to um, keep your uh, outlines open, um, follow along. Some people find it helpful to jot down some notes. It's uh, always good to look back at things and maybe some things to explore, maybe some application that you want to put into practice afterwards. Uh, it's not a bad idea. Um, as we look at this today, uh, I, I want to suggest that it's going to be a little awkward for the blokes. Uh, now, there are other parts of scripture that are a little awkward for the women, but this one will be a little awkward for the blokes. Let, let me explain. Uh, it's pretty common now to only use gender-inclusive language. I mean, we, we've kind of moved in our way of thinking uh, just to speak about people as, as men might have been a way of describing people way back then, including men and women, but now we want to be very particular. We want to say men and women. And modern translations of the Bible have by and large picked up on this so that instead of just saying, brothers, I encourage you to do this, the translators have respected the fact that it's probably not masculine Christians that are being addressed. It's, it's all Christians, so they translate it as brothers and sisters, even though the original Greek might just say brothers. Um, and uh, there's a couple of passages in the New Testament where women, I think, need to do the work to kind of get on board with what's being said. And I'll give you an example of this from Romans chapter 8. So in Romans chapter 8 and verse 14, it says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Now, this is a modern translation. It used to say those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And if you were your parents' age, then you would be reading this as a woman, thinking, how do I relate to this? Well, you've got to put yourself among the sons. And so there's a little bit of a challenge to do that. You've still got to do it in the next verse, even in a modern translation, because it says, the spirit who, who you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. It doesn't say your adoption to being children. It says sonship, and I, and I think there's something particular about son, which we as both men and women need to appreciate and that is the son in the ancient world when this was written would be the heir. He would be the one who would inherit the property. Now, we can debate the rights and the wrongs of doing that, and that would uh, be a, a, anathema in our society now if only the male children received the inheritance. But if you go back and you understand this, then the one who inherits everything in all of creation is the son... So we are brought into relationship with him as sons of God, men and women. Now, that's the bit that's awkward for the women amongst us. Today I said it would be awkward for the blokes, and, and that is because the Bible talks about our relationship to God as being his bride. Uh, you can see it through the Old Testament with the nation of Israel being the bride of Yahweh, you see it in the New Testament with the Christian church being the bride of Christ. And uh, for you fellas, I, I imagine that you probably find that a little bit difficult. I mean, as Matt was talking about the black and the white, the, the suit and the dress, fellas, you can imagine wearing the suit, but it's a little hard to put yourself into the picture of the bride. Well, we'll come to that. And... Uh, 
it's the challenge, I think, in understanding this particular image of God's word. Well, let's have a look at this psalm. We see that it's a psalm to be sung. It's for the director of music. Uh, it had a tune, and that was long lost, The Lilies. Um, again, it's another one of these psalms of the sons of Korah. There's a whole group of them in a row. It's a mascal, and in particular, I highlight that it's a wedding song. We're going to hear about a wedding in the midst of this psalm, and it's quite possible that this was sung at royal weddings, maybe in other times as well. Well, the first character that uh, we meet in this psalm is the king. And I, I want us to have a look at a number of things about the king. Verse 1, my heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. So yes, this is written to be sung, but it's particularly focused on the king. Uh, and we see the king mentioned a number of times. Uh, he's clothed in splendour and majesty. He's anointed with grace. It's his throne. He's anointed with the oil of joy. Uh, he is the one who has princes coming after him. And uh, he receives the praise of the nations. This, this is the king that's on view. And you might remember as we were going through the Bible in 10, we saw that Israel got a king. First of all, it was Saul. That was the people's king. But then it was David who was God's anointed. And then we were told that there would be a king on the throne of David forever and ever. And you can look at Solomon and then others after him. Well, we're told a number of things about this king. He is the most excellent of men. Um, I don't think that's uh, just his appearance. Uh, I think it's more a metaphor for his whole character. Uh, look at his character in verse 4. Um, he is in the cause of truth, humility and justice. Uh, and if you come down a little further to verse 6, a scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Verse 7, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. So the thing about this king is that he is a righteous ruler. He rules with justice and equity. He is a fair king and he's remarkably a humble king. Um, humility was not prized in the ancient world. This king is a humble and just ruler of his people. And notice also that he does so with truth there in verse 4. Um, we see back in verse 2 that his lips have been anointed with grace and that he speaks truth in verse 4. The, the words of this king are important. Um, he is one who will lead the people by his word and he'll do it with humility, he'll do it with truth and he'll do it in justice. Uh, but this is a king also who has achieved victories. And we're told in a number of verses here about his victories. Verse 4, in majesty, you ride forth victoriously. Uh, verse 4, let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Or verse 5, let your sharp arrows pierce the heart of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. So he's a powerful king. He is a victorious king. And he has defeated the nations that come in opposition uh, to him. And finally, having seen that he is the, the, the truthful king, he's got a good character of righteousness, he's had victories, 
the focus of this psalm is on his wedding. And if you come down to verse 8 and 9, you see this. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia, from palaces adorned with ivory. The music of the strings makes you glad. It's a ceremonial picture here. Daughters of kings are among your honoured women. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of her fur. So the main character here is the king, uh, the king at this wedding. But the other character is the bride. And uh, you'd see a number of things about the bride. Uh, and in particular, there's a message that's given to her in verses 10 down to 15. And the first aspect of this message is that she is to forget the past and look forward to the future. So verse 10, listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Now, there's a certain resonance in this, isn't there? Like turning forward, not backwards. And uh, if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, you've got the creation of the man and the woman. And then this little summary statement in verse 24 that says, For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. So there's the moving away from the past to the future. Um, you see this pattern continuing on a bigger scale. Abraham is told to leave his father and his father's household behind and go to the land of promise that God would show him. Of course, when we get to the New Testament, uh, those who follow Jesus are to turn their back on themselves and their past and to follow after Jesus. Well, here is the bride being asked to forget her past and to look to the future with the king. And it's a, it's a glorious bride that's on view. Uh, down in verse 13, all glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments, she is led to the king and uh, she's got companions with her in verse 15, led in with joy and gladness, they enter the palace of the king. So you've got a picture here of the bride, dressed up, all glorious, enthusiastic, in joy, coming into the presence of the king. She's to forget her past and now to give herself fully to the king. In fact, if you look at verse 11, let the king be enthralled by your beauty... Honour him, for he is your Lord. Um, here she is to devote herself to the king. Literally, when it says there, honour him, for he is your Lord, it literally means worship him. Uh, it's the idea of bowing down before. So the bride is to honour her husband-to-be. Uh, she's to give herself fully to the king. In fact, she is to worship the king. Now... What do we make of the king and the bride? Um, how do we identify uh, these people in the psalm? Well, it's a, it is a very Davidic kind of psalm, isn't it? Um, you pick up on the notions of the king being on the divine throne in verse 6. Uh, it, it kind of fits well with... The picture of David, the one who rules with truth and humility and justice, who's been victorious over the enemies. Uh, you might say that it, it even fits better with Solomon. Um, Solomon with the nations coming and bringing their gifts to him. 
and you can pretty much pick between one and 300 and something wives as to who might fit into this particular account. That's a little bit tricky, isn't it? Um, and you can see elements of David, the ideal king, and Solomon, the wise king, and, and all the opulence and the glory and the victories and the wisdom that's on view here in this picture of the king. Um, but of course, David lived and died. Solomon lived and died. And their successors uh, do the same and they don't actually get any better. Um, there's a decline in the kingdom that, that happens. So what do we make of it? Is it just an idealised picture of the king? Uh, does it fit with a particular Old Testament king? Well, I want to take you to verses 6 and 7, and you'll notice that I've highlighted them in your handouts. They're, they're in bold. That's just me doing that when I printed it up. Um, but I've, I've highlighted them for a couple of reasons. And the first is, I think that they're actually the key to understanding this psalm. Um, they're a puzzle when you read it. So the first thing it says, Your throne, O God will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Up until this point, the psalmist has been speaking about the king. And now in verse 6, it seems like he addresses himself instead of to the king, to God. Your throne, O God. But then in the second half of the verse, he's talking about the kingdom again. What do we make of this? Now, uh, when you look at different English translations, some of them uh, try and interpret this for us. Uh, the original just says, your throne, O God. But some try and interpret it. They, they say, the divine throne. Or you might be thinking of David's throne is actually God's throne. And so it's picking up on the fact that whilst it is David's kingdom or Solomon's kingdom, it's actually God's kingdom but that doesn't account for the direct address to God. Your throne, O God. And that's what we've got here. And then, verse 7, it seems to continue without missing a beat. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. See, it both seems to be addressed to God and addressed to the king. And when you look at the Old Testament, there's no king in the whole of the Old Testament who can actually fulfil this psalm. And so we turn a page to the New Testament. If you're uh, clued in, you might realise that the overall framework for this sermon is exactly the same as the overall framework for the last sermon. That is, we're looking at an Old Testament psalm with New Testament fulfilment and contemporary application. I won't do that for every psalm uh, necessarily, uh, but I think it fits well here. I've highlighted it for another reason, not just because it's a bit of a conundrum, but because it is directly quoted in the New Testament. And you'll find the quote in Hebrews chapter 1. In fact, it's like the writer to the Hebrews had been doing his quiet times in the Psalms uh, because there's psalm after psalm after psalm quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. And we find these two verses, verses 6 and 7, 
quoted in Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 8 and 9. And listen to this, and it's the beginning that you need to hear. This bit. But about the Son, he says. But about the Son, he says. And then he quotes, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Who is it about? Is it about God? Yes. Is it about the king? Yes. Because the king is God. The son of God. And if you want to know who this son is, then you go back to the beginning of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And listen to what it says of the son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. See, what we've got back in the psalm, Psalm 45, is fulfilled in Jesus, who is both God and the Davidic king. Your throne, O God, speaking of the Son. Your kingdom, speaking of the Son. It is one and the same. The Messiah, the Davidic King, the Son of God, this one is God. He's God in the flesh. He becomes a human. This is God come to earth in Jesus. And so ultimately this psalm, whilst written probably to be celebrated at the, at the weddings of the kings of Israel is only fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's the only one who fulfills it properly. But then the question is, who is the bride? If Jesus, the son, is the king, then who is the one who's to marry him? And this is where, fellas, we need to do a little bit of translating. So in Ephesians chapter 5, um, this is a, a passage which gets read at plenty of weddings. Um, it talks about husbands and wives. And it speaks about, in verse 31, quoting Genesis, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So this passage, which talks all about the husband and the wife and how the husband is to love the wife, is actually modelled on the relationship between Christ and the church. That the blueprint, if you like, for marriage is Jesus and his bride. We tend to think that human marriages give you an insight into Jesus. 
and his relationship to people. But Ephesians 5 tells us it's the other way around. That God's blueprint is that Jesus will be connected together with his bride. You can read this a little further up. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. See, the blueprint for marriage is Jesus and the church. How did Jesus treat the church? Well, he gave up everything for the church to make the church holy and blameless before him. And that is the call on the husband to love his wife in the same manner. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. It's not just that marriage is a mystery, though those of us who are married would tend to agree, but it's that it is ultimately speaking about Christ and the church. Now, this is not just proof texting in Ephesians 5. You'll find, find the same idea in 2 Corinthians 11. You'll find it repeated a number of times in the last three chapters of the Bible. And I just want to go to the very end of the book of Revelation because it's interesting how a theme gets introduced in the first two chapters of the Bible, that is man and woman united together in marriage, that finds its fulfilment and climax in the last two chapters of the Bible. So in um, Revelation 19, uh, and I'll read from verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb, the Lamb is Jesus, has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. So you've got a picture there of Jesus being united together with the church, with those who have put their trust in Jesus, the, the Christians, all of them gathered together, all united together with Jesus. And the clothing, if you like, it's a picture of transformed lives. You, you see a similar idea in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Now there's a lot of mixing of metaphors there, isn't there? So you've got this picture of the new Jerusalem and uh, if you were with us last week I said the Jerusalem that's in the Middle East at the moment is not holy. It, it, it's a city and it's uh, a city that includes Jews and Muslims and Christians and atheists and a whole bunch of other people. Now, God's plan for Jerusalem is ultimately a new Jerusalem that is his people that he describes as a bride. A lot of mixing of metaphors there. Um, and then at the very end, in Revelation 22, um, I know there's not much context I'm giving to this, but at least we're seeing that it, it, it appears here. In Revelation 22 and verse 17, the Spirit, that's the Spirit of God, and the Bride, that is Christians, say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. 
Let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. There's this call for people to come to this wedding. And Jesus himself uses the language of a wedding banquet, inviting people to come and be guests at the wedding. But you see, the picture here is that the one who is invited to come to the wedding of the Lamb is actually the one who is invited to participate as part of the bride. So the, the, the ultimate wedding, if you like, is the union between Christ and his people. And you don't get to go to that wedding unless you are part of the bride. There's no spectators at that wedding. Now, if you receive the invitation, it's, a re- it's an invitation to be part of the bride of Christ. Now, now, you might have heard the language of the bride of Christ being used of, of nuns and, and, and so on. But that's got nothing to do with what the Bible is saying. The, the, the picture of the bride of Christ is using the most intimate, relational description of Jesus and people connected as one. We are invited into union with Christ. It's a big Bible theme here from Genesis 2 through to Revelation 22. And the application, well, the the first thing that I'd say is when we ask the question or get asked the question, who am I or who are you? How do we think about that answer? Maybe we tend to think about our work. That's one of the typical responses that, you know, I'm a teacher or, you know, I'm an architect or um, I'm retired or I'm working at home. We tend to think about our work. It's a typical way that people see their identities and so on. It's interesting, I, I went along to a book club a month ago and there were two rules of the book club and the first one was nobody talks about work and and it was really interesting because the most normal thing to ask somebody else you couldn't ask except they did say what sort of books do you like to read and kind of gave a little bit away Um, what was my point i've lost it again yeah how do we identify thank you thank you good on you kathy it's good to have somebody listening the rest of you, shame. The, uh, who, who, who am I? This, I think, helps us to see that our identity is really tied up with who are we. That, that is, our identity as Christians is in relationship with other Christians. That together we are the bride of Christ. So if you're a part of Salt Community Church... You're part of a group of people here. You're you're gathered into this community. But we really want to be encouraging people to be part of the bride of Christ. So if you've been coming along and you've not yet made a response to Jesus, that's what we're into. That's what we want to call you to do, to respond to Christ. And as you respond to Christ, you'll discover more and more and more and more that that's where the key to your identity is to be found in Jesus. Union with Christ will become increasingly the most significant thing that describes who you are. You you can get a job, you can lose a job. You you can go on holidays, you can stay at home. You, You can 
have hobbies, you can have different hobbies or no hobbies. And there are many different things that connect people together and, and create conversation and build relationships. But deep down, we can have different work, different hobbies, be in different families, vote for different parties. We can have different marital status. But if we are Christian, then we are united together in Christ. And that's the community in Salt Community Church, fundamentally. It's interesting, too, that, that whether, whether we're married in this life or single in this life or divorced in this life, we are still, if we're Christian, united to Christ in marriage. And that'll be the enduring, eternal relationship. So we see ourselves in union with Christ, but in seeing ourselves and our identity with Christ and one another, it transforms our relationships. There's a very direct application, I think, of this psalm taken in the light of the New Testament to human marriages. Um, it, it's a model for relationship in, in, a, in the way the New Testament picks up on these themes and how the husband is to love his wife as, as, as Christ loves the church. And how the, the church is to respond to her husband, um, Christ. And then that influences the wife's response to the husband. The, there's so many points of connection here. But it's ultimately not just a model for marriage. It, it's, a, it's a model for relationship. All sorts of relationships. Humility. Truth. Justice. The way of the king is to be our way, to treat one another with, with deep respect because we worship Jesus, King Jesus, as number one. Friends, as we come to understand what has happened in our past, that is, God has fulfilled the promises made in Psalm 45 in Jesus... And what will happen in our future that we're looking forward to the wedding of the Lamb and unity with Christ forever, then that'll shape what matters here and now. Let me encourage you to reflect again on this psalm and to be praying that God will help you to see how you can respond to union with Christ.